Is that your uh, <laughs> click language? My, or? my new click language. What da- word did you just say in your click language? I said, like, thank you. Like da- trees walking. Like trees walking with theme song by Daniel Hutt. Thank you. Yeah, this is uh, Like Trees Walking. This is Michael J. Nelson, and you are? I'm David Berge. Happy New Year to our listeners. You could be listening to this at any point in time. Um, but if you're listening sequentially or in any kind of order, it's a new year. Same old us. <laughs> yeah. We resolve to give you only the same stuff we've been churning out for. Which is fresh thinking man's uh, theology. And thinking and thinking person's mic. Oh, Okay. Oh, we talk, we, that's a little... <laughs> it got, it's a little it's a, well, tease. Tease to what we have coming up. Not much of a tease, though. Yeah, most of this... Up at the end. Your lucky audience out there, you mostly get uh, an, a wonderful interview with an uh, acquaintance of mine. I, I met him one time, and uh, so this has been years in the making, and I said, I'd like to interview you sometime. And then here we are, seven years later, and uh, Fred Sanders is going to be our guest on the show. Dr. Our, Fred Sanders. Doctor, I'm sorry, Doctor Fred Sanders. Um, to me, he's just Fred. <laughs> I think I mentioned that I met him. Wow. Uh, yeah. No, he's. Uh, we have a mutual friend, so we finally set this up. And uh, there's not. I think we can dive in. Is there anything we need to explain about no, this? No. No. I mean, he. We wanted to talk to him because when 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 you're talking about the Christian God, uh, we're talking about the Trinity. All right, and so yeah. we have not done a Trinity show yet, um, and so if you are a Christian, you know you know you're probably the Trinity is something you're supposed to believe in or something like that. We did like the heresy quiz; some of the Trinitarian stuff mm-hmm. came up in that. But we thought, well, if you're a Christian or not, and you're just an, an interested, curious person, it would be helpful to know what are Christians talking about when they're talking about God. Um, what is the theological logic behind what's going on there? Not just like a you know, well, like three and one, one and three, like a you know weird math problem or something like that, you know. Um, so I think for people who aren't Christians or just curious or interested, um, this is a super helpful way to think about what is at this one of the very central Christian claims for, for Orthodox Christian faith is that God is um, a tri, triune, three and one, one and three. I mean, you take that, you put that next to uh, that Jesus is uh, uh, fully God and, and, and fully human. I mean, those are two of the major central claims of, uh, of Orthodox Christianity um, that we espouse over the centuries. And so we had not done a, uh, uh, we hadn't done a Trinitarian show. And when there's talking about the Trinity, Fred Sanders is, I mean, in the world, he's probably one of the foremost experts. Dr. Fred Sanders? Yes. Please. Dr. Fred Sanders. <laughs> I know, I slipped into colloquialism. I'm sorry. He's not an acquaintance of mine. We just met you know, an hour ago on this podcast. Uh, but he's a, he's an expert in the field, um, has, has researched and written extensively on it and um, for an academic audience, but also um, I think is accessible, uh, talks about things in a smart way. You know, he's not dumbing it down at all, but, but I've just found it to be a really interesting conversation as someone who, you know, has studied uh, theology and then had the blessed responsibility, uh, sacred responsibility of, of preaching and teaching, um, from those theological convictions to to folks in in ministry contexts, like I had lots of questions that I wanted to ask him, and so I got to do that. Well, I say with that, uh, let's just take it away. Um, so, Doctor Fred Sanford, Fre- Sanford? Sanford, wow, yeah, that's a mistake. Well, there is a Fred Sanford. It's from Sanford and Son, the oh, TV yeah. show. 
So it just trips off the tongue because it's my favorite show of all time. No, it's that's not true. Oh, <laughs> it, do you, did you like the show? No, not really. Why? Uh, it, I it just I don't know. It just wasn't that funny, and it was set in a junkyard, and it just kind of looked ugly. <laughs> so I just think I didn't like looking at it. It was a, the seventies were like a ugly. Like, everything looked ugly in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. And Fred Sanford, unlike Mr. Dr. Sanders, is uh, is not much to look at. He's, uh, he's uh, easy he's on the eyes. <laughs> That's not Red Fox, is it? It is Red Fox. The great yes. Red Fox. The great, late Red Fox, yeah. Anyway, this is not him. Father this... of Vivica A. Fox. No, I just made that up. Is it? I She's don't very know. attractive. I bought it right away. She's an attractive woman to have an ugly... Yeah. Or not, a, just, you know... Not necessarily. Uh, he's no, you know, Denzel or well Idris uh, Elba. Elba. Well, if she's his daughter, then you have to give me that Thomas Dolby is a member of the Dolby family. <laughs> so, but enough of this nonsense. Let's listen to some good, thoughtful stuff from Doctor Fred Sanders and our own Right Reverend David Berge. All right. So here we go. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I am recording with the August. Dr. Fred Sanders at the uh, at Biola out in lovely, sunny Los Angeles, uh, California. He is a professor of, uh, of, of theology. Are you at the uh, Tories Honor Institute, Fred? That's right. Tory Honors Institute. All undergraduate right. education. All right. Wonderful. I, I, I uh, uh, once lived in Southern California myself in Ojai. I don't know if you're familiar with that town. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Big, big. Well, yeah, because it's on, you know, if you're ever finding your way up to Westmont or Santa Barbara or whatever uh, and driving through That's Ventura. Just take... Well, it's Shangri-La, right? Oh, From, it is. Uh, yes. In uh, what is what's the movie again? Lost Horizon. Yes. Lost Horizon. Yeah, it is. It is Shangri-La uh, uh, home to uh, many celebrities. The guy who was on was he on uh, Di- Dallas or Dynasty he used to live in there, too. <laughs> Guy with oh, the huge, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, um, uh, Ted Danson and Mary Steenbergen uh, also <laughs> live there. So uh, yeah, so uh, Southern California, you and you are, we're talking to you because you are, when it comes to the world of Trinitarian theology, um, you're it. You're, you're like the one person to talk to. And well, that is what I study, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, just by way of kind of introduction, I think it'd be interesting for uh, our audience to know, how did that become, how did you become the Trinity guy? How did that become your thing? Uh, when did you decide? When 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 were you swept up into the divine life uh, of the triune God that you were going to study this? Yeah. Um, well, I was an art major as an undergraduate, uh, drawing and printmaking, and then I decided to get into theology and kind of had some remedial work to do. So I was surveying all the different areas of theology, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, church history, philosophy, um, and. As I got my basics done and started to get to that point in graduate education where you have to specialize, I didn't really want to specialize. I, I loved it all. I kind of wanted to do everything. Um, of course, you can't do everything with any degree of expertise at all. But I decided I would pick a really large doctrine that in order to do it well, you really did have to kind of spread out and cover the bases. So to do justice to the confession of, of God as Father, Son, and Spirit, you need to be pretty good at Bible, pretty good at church history, decent at philosophy, have an understanding of how it applies spiritually. So that that's kind of what really drew me to the doctrine. 
So you are wanting to avoid specialization, and you know you can't pick a bigger doctrine than the doctrine of God. Right. So that was yeah. a good that was a good home. Uh, and so, by way of introduction to, uh, uh, so you introduced yourself. Uh, could you give us a, just a real basic introduction to the do- an Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity? You know, uh, I'll start with a, um, I, uh, a, I'll start with a prompt that's a little bit provocative uh, from a conversation I once had uh, in a, a church gym locker room when I was playing basketball, and I someone said this, and I'm not sure what tradition he came from. He made he might have come from like a Jesus uh, only. Um, kind of holiness type uh, of tradition. I think that's where this guy was coming from. But he mm-hmm. said, he's like, listen, he's like, I've, I, he's like, I've had this conversation with many a Trinitarian. He said that, you know, the doctrine of Trinity, uh, that word is not in the Bible. Um, so why do Christians use it? And why has this come to have such a uh, massive role in what Christians are talking about when they talk about God? Yeah. Yeah, well, so the doctrine of the Trinity is... Um, it is the Christian view of who God is if the Bible is true. So it's, it's a big doctrine. It really takes the entire Genesis to Revelation scope of what God has made known about himself and takes one step back from that and says, if all of this is true, who must God be? And, and the answer is given to us in Scripture. We didn't have to invent it. Um, if all of this is true, then God must be the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one God. Um, it is certainly true that the word Trinity is um, not a word that you find directly in Scripture. It's just a convenient label. In one sense, not much hangs on the word Trinity. Um, what, what matters is that we're able to look at how God has revealed himself in Scripture and confess that there's exactly one God and that that God eternally exists in a fellowship, a relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons. Wonderful summation. And so uh, when, you know, when uh, this is always, um, uh, it's a question that anyone, I mean, if you're a preacher, a a theologian, anyone teaching anything, so it's like, okay, um, well, why, why does that matter? You know, you have this belief about God. Um, Why does this particular belief about God uh, matter? What's the big deal? Yeah. So to, to really kind of get down to why it matters, um, I'm going to engage in the long Christian tradition of setting aside the Holy Spirit for just a minute for the sake of clarity. Because um, it's easy to get kind of wrapped up in the dialectics of threeness and get distracted by that kind of stuff. What, what's really going on kind of on the front burner is Jesus Christ brings salvation to those who believe in him through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Who must he be? in order to bring about actual salvation and reconciliation with God. Well, you've only got a few options, right? He could be a creature who somehow manages that, but then you're stuck with a notion of salvation, which is the kind of thing a creature could accomplish. And at that point, you have to think, well, what was our human problem? Was it something, could God have sent an angel to solve our human problem? Um, and, and the more you think about it, the more you think, no, we have a, we have a problem of personal estrangement from God which can only be solved by God himself. So once you've accepted that, that the salvation Jesus brings about is the kind that could only be done by God himself, now your option is really narrow. Um, Either Jesus is all there is of God, and he sent himself and is his own son or some kind of crazy stuff like that, or you have to admit that there is a God the Father who sends, and he sends God the Son who is sent. And, and that's kind of the, 
to me, that's kind of the bottom line. You, you kind of eliminate, you're open-minded, you consider other options, but they all get trimmed down pretty quickly. Then, of course, you open the door and bring in the only other candidate in the whole Bible for inclusion in the identity of God, and that is the Holy Spirit. Um, and then you can kind of expand out from there to say, oh, so this is why the early church fathers, when they read the entire canon of Scripture, said, oh, I see, God, the one God must eternally be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I did leave out one other option that you could consider but then reject. It could be that God used to be just one God, but then morphed into, you know, underwent a basic change in, in which he turned into the one God as Father, Son, and Spirit. But if you, if you mean by God something who, someone who is eternal, perfect, and doesn't change, um, then you have to read the Trinity all the way back into what God has always been. And so when we trace the historical development of the doctrine of the Trinity, um, you know, uh, so maybe a, um, a, a, a response to this would be, well, you know, where do you see this? Or this is just proof texting it or, or even a greater challenge. How can you really find that in, in the Old Testament? So looking at the entirety of the canon of Scripture, I could see, okay, you know, we get to the New Testament and we have things like Paul, uh, you know, his benediction uh, at, the end of, uh, at the end of 2 Corinthians, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we see it there. But besides, you know, a couple isolated proof texts, Fred, uh, like we don't have anything, uh, you know, pertaining to the Trinity, and especially not when you go to the, uh, the Old Testament. And so uh, how, as a Trinitarian theologian, looking at the whole sweep of Scripture, do you see the Trinity operative uh, there? Yeah, that's good. And the Old Testament is the big question here. Um, one of my best friends is an Old Testament scholar, and he doesn't call it the Old Testament. He calls it most of the Bible. <laughs> it's like, it's 75%, uh, yeah. uh, you know, so yeah. it's, it's a lot of it. It's the part that makes it a respectable sized book for a world, world religion to have. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. So my opinion on this, um, and you know, there's precedent for this, this way of putting it, is that God always was triune, but was not always clearly revealing his triunity. Um, I, I think that if you look back on the, the things that Paul says, the things that Jesus says, you know, when Jesus says, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's not simply making up things or bringing new information. He's offering there an interpretation of what's always been going on in the life of God. Um, and they are, Paul especially is arguing from the Old Testament. Um, but you don't want to get in a position where you go back and say, you read Genesis to Revelation, close the book and say, okay, turns out God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now let me do my first reread. And then you open up to Genesis 1 and say, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, I guess... What that means is it's revealing that the Trinity created the heavens and the earth. I think there's, that's a kind of a false move, right, to, to impute to the first page of a book what you learned from reading the last page of mm -hmm. a book. It can enrich your understanding. You know, Every time I reread Jane Austen, I understand more about what was always going on in the book because now I've finished the whole book. Um, but I think that's the kind of thing that's going on in Scripture. So in terms of, I would use the language progressive revelation, that God made known something which was always true, but not always revealed. Okay. And I would distinguish that from, I think, the term you used when you asked the question, which is the development of the doctrine. Yes. I would say progressive revelation is one thing. That's God, in his wisdom, making known what we need to know at the right time. Development of the doctrine is more us reading the Bible over and over for 2,000 years, trying to say as accurately as possible what we understand about it 
and making up words like Trinity to try to explain what we're seeing. And so uh, speaking of making up words and getting back into that, um, so uh, for anyone who has sort of any uh, experience at all with, uh, uh, with, with trying to explain or understand the doctrine of the Trinity, we get into these, this, or anyone who has, uh, has, has said this creed or, you know, sang some of the great hymns of the church, you know, uh, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And so, uh, uh, and these words like essence or usia, uh, Fred, can you help our audience understand what is a, when we say one God, three persons, how can three persons be one thing or what what what's going on with the language uh, behind that yeah yeah um and of course the word trinity is not the bible but neither are the words person or um being used in that sense Mm -hmm. right um yeah so you could back off and say we need to be able to describe what there's one of in god because god is very clear that there is one god you know uh, hero israel the lord your god is one um and then we have um, God sending God sending God in the New Testament, and we have to come up with language for what there's three of. And I think it's Augustine back in the fifth century who said, I'm going to say person because when you ask me three what, I don't want to say nothing. Mm-hmm. Right? So, <laughs> so in one sense, like, don't lean too much on this word and don't just free associate every idea in your mind about what a person is with what I'm saying. Um, but I need to be able to say what the Father is, what the Son is, and what the Spirit are, uh, what the Spirit is, and the word I'm going to use for that is person. So the Christian claim is that um, what there's one of in God is being, and what there's three of is person. And I mean, just getting that right is really helpful because some people will say in very short form, the doctrine of the Trinity teaches that God is three in one. Well, that's true, but by leaving out the nouns, you invite lots of trouble. Okay. Right? Three what's in one what? Um, three gods in one God? That's not what we teach. Three persons in one person? That's not what we teach. So if you go ahead and, ass- go ahead and assign the nouns, it's, much, it's very clarifying. Three persons in one being. So Fred, if you were to, uh, this is switching tracks just a little bit, but w- so when we look at, um, I mean, the the history of Christians, uh, Christian theologians um, expounding, you know, uh, trying to expound upon who God is um, uh, so that people can know God and worship God and serve God and live faithful lives, that's their motivation. Uh, who is on your Mount Rushmore of Trinitarian theologians? Oh, Yeah. Um, well, Athanasius of Alexandria, um, back in the fourth century, um, oh, and you have he, to say why they get on your Mount Rushmore, by the way, this is like, oh, yeah, defend, yeah. <laughs> this is like the NBA who's on the NBA Mount Rushmore. Like you can't just say the name. You got to put why yeah. they're on your Mount Rushmore. <laughs> yeah. And I'm skipping the Bible cause I don't want to just say Jesus and Paul. And <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that would be cheating. Something, that would be cheating. Something unfair about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Athanasius of Alexandria because he's the one who lived and worked at a time when some kind of anti-Trinitarianism really emerged. When, when Arians began saying the son of God is not God, but is the greatest creature of God or the first creature. Um, When they started really pushing that um, Christian theology had to respond in a much more aggressive way with much better arguments. And Athanasius is the one who really stuck to the argument. And he's also the one who made the salvation argument that if the son is a creature, then all we've got is a creaturely kind of salvation. And that's not what the gospel's about. 
So Athanasius, a real hero. Yeah, and he, uh, you know, there's a famous saying in theological cir- circles, you know, Athanasius contra mundum. Like he, uh, he was not afraid. He wasn't like a joiner or a go along to get along kind of fellow. He, um, I mean, he stood uh, against because Arianism was my church history. I'm steeping back into my memory, but Arianism was ascendant for a period. Uh, right, I mean, as, as in uh, you know, as the Roman Empire changed, and it might have been in official favor at some point, right? Yeah, that's right. So that Athanasius was exiled officially five times. He was the the bishop of the major city of Alexandria. So you know, the the head. It's not fair to say the head of the biggest church. He was sort of the pastor of the city, um, and so to exile him is a, a big deal. And he he got kicked out five different times. And um, yeah, contra mundum or against the world. He was certainly against the entrenched authorities at that time, but when he went into exile, he always had somewhere to go. It was out to the monks in the middle of the desert. Um, Other times it was to Rome to get some support there. Um, Yeah, so he wasn't all by himself, but he he definitely was, uh, well, you know, exile. Exiled five times. That's more times than I've been exiled. Exactly. How many how many times have you been exiled, Fred? <laughs> kind of a big deal to get kicked out like that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess I should go back a little bit in time. He, he's around the year, um, you know, 350 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, you could go back to, oh, before the year 200, Irenaeus. Um, some people pronounce it Irenaeus. Um, Irenaeus of Lyon in what we now call France. He um, He's one of the first theologians to have the whole New Testament canon in front of him for reading all at once and to kind of put together a big comprehensive idea. And um, he uses this wonderful image of God the Father doing everything through the Son and Spirit. And he uses this image or metaphor of the Father working on the world with his two hands. It's kind of a clunky metaphor, but it, it really shows you the sort of Trinitarian thinking he's doing before he's got all the right terminology in place. So he was fighting some Gnostics who would say, God's too high and exalted to work with the creation because it's, you know, it's full of mud and blood and all kinds of nasty stuff. So he probably just sends angels, right? Mm-hmm. Irenaeus said, no, no, everything God does, the Father does with his own two hands, the Son and the Spirit. Um, so, so that's a, a beautiful, it's kind of a naive way to put it. You know, you wouldn't want to turn that into a doctrine as if the Spirit were the hand of God, as yeah. if you were part of God or something, and not just God. But Irenaeus really gets it. So I'd have Irenaeus, Athanasius, um, Gregory Nazianzus worked in Cappadocia or what we'd call Turkey now. Um, he wrote a little, he wrote, he preached five sermons, the five theological orations. You can get them in print from St. Vladimir's Press as um, On God and Christ. And they are the clearest uh, classic description of Trinitarianism. And he, he's, um, that's around the year 379. Um, and maybe I'd round it out with Augustine. It's hard to, hard to get around Augustine of Hippo. Uh, wrote a large, powerful book called On the Trinity uh, that, that really kind of brings together the Latin tradition. So we got On Your Mount Rushmore, Irenaeus of Lyon, Athanasius of Alexandria, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Augustine of Hippo. Yeah, I'd go with that team. And are there only four people on Mount that also leads to, that leads me to the question. There's only four people on Mount Rushmore? <laughs> I don't know. There are five, aren't there? Do I need how many people are on Mount Rushmore? There's Lincoln. Uh oh wow. Uh Thomas <laughs> Jefferson. <laughs> this is terrible. Come on. Uh Thomas Jefferson, Lincoln, Washington. Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Teddy Roosevelt, right? I don't know. <laughs> 
Is there how many people are Mike? Your uh, Mike is here listening. Mike, how many people are on Mount Rushmore? Oh, uh, gentlemen, I'm just running the boards Would here. You, I, but, come <laughs> on, man! How many people are on Mount? Rushmore? Is there five or four? I'll, oh, there's four. I just I just Google image searched it. I'm I'm failing my cultural literacy. Test, I always thought but. there was a fifth. I was like, who do you get to add? I think maybe that's always the question: is who who do you get to add? Okay, I'm giving you a bonus person. Uh, Fred, you get to add a fifth. Is there anyone else you want to add to your mount? Because this is a theological Mount Rushmore, so it's better than the regular one. Yeah, it's more, much more important. Who are you adding? I, I, I might jump all the way to the 16th. Yeah, century. we've got to go Reformation and on. Oh, we, and you get yeah. you, you have to add one from now. I'm changing the rules of the game on you, um, <laughs> as I want to do on this podcast in the middle of it. You got to choose one from the Reformation era and one from the last uh, 200 years. Let's say. Oh yeah. Okay. So the Reformation era, Calvin. Um, I would go with. Calvin, um, if you take the whole structure of his book, The Institutes, he, the big picture is basically God places all the riches of salvation in Christ, and those riches of salvation come to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So as you read from book one to two to three of The Institutes, this massive Trinitarian structure of the grace of God comes out. And um, yeah, it, it just, it's a really kind of applied operational experiential doctrine of the Trinity. That presupposes, of course, the classical doctrine. Um, Calvin's using a lot of Augustine, using a lot of Nazianzus. So, you know, the Reformation's not the Reformation's not a change in the Christian doctrine of God. It's an argument about soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. But it is the same old classical doctrine of the Trinity working through the 16th century. Oh, and then with moderns, um, gosh... I would probably go with uh, John Webster, who who just passed away a couple of years ago, British theologian. Um, that might be too academic of an answer because he's but that's not okay. Over- he's not super well known. Uh, we uh, when I was uh, I went to Princeton Theological Seminary, and one of our in our systematics class, one of the major texts we read was his on Holy Scripture. Yeah, uh, yep. b- book. So I mean, it's you know, uh, that's okay to be obscure. You're picking the Mount Rushmore. You know, you're <laughs> yeah. the Trinity guy. So yeah. you know, probably the obvious right answer is Karl Barth, who um, he was working in sort of liberal theological culture at the beginning of the 20th century, and when he began seriously arguing that the Trinity was a most important foundational doctrine that we all needed to take seriously, the sort of liberal German academics that he was working in in higher academic theology couldn't believe he was serious they just like laughed him out of court why was it where what was going on with this anti-trinitarianism in in those circles and i i don't know if it's related at all or if it's two just two separate things but like what happened in the american you know early in the colonial period when all of these you know churches went unitarian what was fred what was going on yeah um you know there's a sense in which the doctrine of the trinity is one of those hard doctrines that makes a serious truth claim And so anytime you get any form of theological liberalism that's kind of looking to the spirit of the age to see what sorts of views are acceptable or, you know, promotable, um, certain doctrines are going to, are going to go on the chopping block. You know, the, the teaching about the, the fundamental sinfulness of, of human nature in its current condition. That's just a, it's a hard doctrine in the sense that it's a serious truth claim and you, you know, you have to maintain it. Doctrine of the Trinity is often seen to be that kind of a doctrine. You're, you know, Jesus is either God or he isn't. Um, and if you're going to seriously maintain the deity of Christ and the unity of God and the distinction of persons, you're going to be defending the Trinity. So it, it always ends up on the chopping block in times when Christianity's 
called into question right. by the spirit of the age. Right, right. As as was the case in the, you know, in, enlightenment, uh, early, the enlightenment spirit of, uh, of colonial America and early America and the in, yeah. in in New England and then in uh in German uh circles in in the in the 19th uh and early 20th uh centuries uh for folks at home who aren't exactly clear what we're talking about when we're talking about theological lib- liberalism my favorite definition of that i mean it's theology um uh that i mean the greatest exponent of that is Friedrich Schleiermacher but my favorite definition of it comes from one of the Niebuhr brothers uh Fred you can help me to remember which one it was i think it was HR uh, who said it's in it, uh, that it's a God without wrath brought a people without sin um, into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ uh, without a cross. So uh, that's the kind of milieu. I mean, and he and and uh, he himself was working or or came from um, um, that tradition as well. And so uh, that's what we're talking about when we're talking uh, uh, about that. Yeah, and in the American uh, the colonial situation, um, yeah, there the Enlightenment is really crucial. There, it's kind of the idea of it's a form of Christianity that's nicer than Christianity. You know, that sort of catches the idea of God the Father and God the Son, and the unity of, of the human race, and then decides to take out all the doctrinal ideas that led you to that, and just you're left over with the residue of just the, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood yeah, the, of man. The, the universal brotherhood of man, right? Yeah, yeah, in the neighborhood of Boston. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually uh, you lose the fatherhood of God, and it's just the, uh, the, brotherhood, of, uh, the brotherhood of man. Well, right, because it turns out that neither the fatherhood of God nor the brotherhood of man are self-evident. No, <laughs> unless, no, no. Yeah, unless you were going from some form of revelation, which you then denied. So, uh, for, um this is related, but I'm going to turn it to this question now, which is, okay, so um, uh, the Trinity is, uh, I mean, it's obviously a foundational, central um, to uh, Christian uh, Orthodox uh, Christian belief and 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 practice, and um, it's also one that is, uh, uh, I mean, intellectually uh, challenging, um, requires uh, precision and rigor, um, and is difficult. And so, it's one then that uh, even though it the Trinitarian language, I mean, is part of the warp and woof of if you're talking about scripture or you're praying or you're saying creeds or you're singing um, great hymns. I mean, you're just kind of using Trinity language all the time without using it in the way that an academic theologian would. But there's maybe this temptation to say, well, um, we we don't want people to see the Trinity as irrelevant or obscure or esoteric, um, kind of you need a PhD to understand it. Um, so we want to make it relevant and make it matter uh, to the people. And so um, that's something that I feel like, you know, working in 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 ministry and being a pastor and a and a Christian in the culture that that's a tendency to see that we kind of so we go okay, well the Trinity is this perfect you know society of per you know of persons like this this perfect connection and and bond ba- bonds of love and so the way that it's relevant for us is we construct our we want our communities to. Um, um, reflect that as well. And so is that like a valid move? Is that a good way to make the Trinity relevant? Or what, what do you think of that trend, sort of finding the ideals of human community within, I'm thinking of that example, particularly in the Trinity? Yeah. I mean, 
So it's not necessarily pernicious. Um, uh, that's kind of faint praise, right? <laughs> <laughs> not exactly pernicious. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that would get you um, like a fresh review on Amazon or on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, actually. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, there's there's something to it. The the problem is the more comfortable you are with it, the more you're likely to think of God as three people. I mean, just in in common English, you know, in normal non-academic English, we we still refer to the Trinity as three persons. And there's something unusual about that language, right? No one says persons. The fire marshal maybe says this room is not to be occupied by more than 50 persons. But all the rest of us in normal English say people. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we've got this long, you know, Christian habit in the English language of saying three persons is kind of a little red flag that lets us know what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are they are not distinct people the same way you and I are distinct people. Um, and partly that's because the unity that they eternally possess is not the same kind of unity that a group has. And, and that means um, that any analogy we're going to draw to what a perfect society or a per- perfect interrelationship would be um, is, is going to be a kind of a broken analogy, right? It's, it's not going to be a perfect fit. That's kind of the long way around. The short thing I would say is the Bible just doesn't talk that way, right? The, the Bible doesn't present um, the Trinity as something that we should imitate. You know, it'll say imitate Christ, imitate God, be imitators of God as beloved children, Ephesians 5.1. Um, but I can't think of any point at which the Bible says, look at the group that the Trinity is and your, your group should imitate that group. Right. It, it's no, this is, not, kind of, it's kind of a fundamentalist yeah. way for me to say it, but that's just not a Bible way of presenting it. So are there any good analogies? I mean, you know, we hear like they always get presented as just bad analogies off the top. So, OK, you know, how can something be three in one? Well, water, you know, has three states, uh, uh, liquid, solid, gas, um, uh, a clover, you know, it's got the three leaves, but it's still one clover, um, you know, like and it's. Uh, one is tritheism, one is modalism. Um, right. You know, what, are there any good analogies out there, Fred? We're trying to help the people understand. We're trying to put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so, um, I mean, analogies are interesting, and there are certainly better and worse ones. I would, I would want to start a little further back and say, anytime you're thinking about something about God, the question of how much, how far an analogy is going to get you is is a is a pretty interesting question, right? So, if I say God made heaven and earth and, you know, God made everything out of nothing, and you ask me, if your first question after I say that is, could you give me an analogy for that? And I'm trying to think of an analogy for making everything out of nothing. And I'm coming up with like, I made a sandwich yesterday. <laughs> kind of like that. Yeah, you know? yeah. kind of like that. There used to not be a sandwich. Then I did something and there was a sandwich. So that's kind of what it's like. But when I say that, it's really clear in both our minds. Well, that's not very much like it at all. So as long as that's your expectation of what a Trinity analogy is going to get you, then sure, lots of analogies will work a little bit. They will work about as well as the sandwich analogy for God making everything out of heaven and earth. The, the reason that theologians like me get kind of stingy or crabby about it is we have the sneaking suspicion that people want more than that out of their Trinity analogy. Right? As long as your expectations are really low, I can, I can be pleased with an analogy. You know, there's, there's a way in which, of course, um, the three persons of the Trinity are in some way like a group of people or in some way like, um, gosh, what are the favorite analogies? Water, ice, and steam or a shamrock or... A, Even like the psych, you know, like a person, like the mind, will, 
soul yeah. or something like that. Like that would be another now the, the the personal analogy or the social analogy or the yeah uh, yeah. As long as you're not saying like define God and give me three examples or something like that, right? <laughs> There's there aren't going to be things in creation that are very much like the Trinity because the Trinity is the one God. Um, eternally existing in three persons. I should also say that some of the analogies you you listed, um, they're they're partial little glimpses of something about God, but most of them are perfect illustrations of heresies. Right. So they uh, take an analogy like I am a um, I am a father and a husband and a professor. But you're and the one Fred Sanders. <laughs> but I'm only one Fred Sanders. <laughs> that's, that's right. right. Um, that's a tiny little glimpse of something that might help you think about something about the Trinity, but it's a perfect illustration of the heresy of modalism. Like it's got a very nice fit with the heresy that says the one unipersonal God acts fatherly when he feels fatherly. And then when he feels sunnish, he becomes incarnate. And then when he's feeling spiritual, he is the Holy spirit, right? That, that it's really one person, but we're considering from like three roles or three, modes or three masks or something like that. So that's why everyone, that's why theologians tend to be pretty careful with the analogies. They, they don't do much for Orthodox Trinitarianism, but if you take them seriously, they go a long way towards illustrating heresies. So there's no good ones. What about the lump of clay statue one? I've, I've, have you ever heard that one? Yeah, that's like a material composition argument from philosophers. Yeah, some philosopher from Purdue. Uh, yeah, yeah. The Neo-Aristotelian, um, compositional yeah like something not, can be a it's like it can be a it's like a statue but it's also a lump of clay at the same time right yeah so stated that way um it's really the distinction between form and content um like i could have a, a statue of apollo made out of gold or out of brass um and it would still be apollo but in these different materials right yeah or if i have a story idea you know is that what is that? Is that a poem or is it a movie? You know, I've got, I've got the same content, but I could put it in different forms. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty distant analogy. Yeah. <laughs> I had a hard time understanding it, but I was like, yeah. it's like, uh, it, because you know, we, we want, uh, we want people to have some understanding. Um, but the, the risk of, uh, needing to like the, the nearness and farness are analogies, you know, near and far, um, and when we're dealing with God, just recognizing a certain um, gigantic uh, distance within our within our analogies from the thing we're you know doing the analogizing of uh, is 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 um, extremely helpful, I, I suppose. Yeah, what I always try to bring it back to is the reason we're talking about the Trinity is that in the fullness of time, um, God sent forth His Son, and and that means that guess what? God has a Son. And that son is either God or not God. And if, it, if that son is God, then you're going to have to go to language like, well, then it turns out there was always God the Father and God the Son. And then in the fullness of time, God the Father sent God the Son. And before that, in terms of progressive revelation, he wasn't even revealing that there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But unless God changes, it turns out there was. So I put a little too many words in there, but basically what I'm saying we believe in the Trinity because of the gospel. The, the gospel is that the Father sent the Son and Holy Spirit for our salvation, and that that's a revelation of who God eternally is. Um, what I'm always working on is connecting the Trinity to the gospel as two things that go together. 
once you've got that in front of you, the question, what is that like? Um, it's a legitimate question. It's not out of bounds, but it's a very subordinate question that, um, that you have limited expectations of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. More helpful to understand uh, the content of uh, the Christian message, message itself than try to draw analogies uh, around it. Yeah, because what it's like, that's a specific question, and um, it, it's, it's of limited helpfulness. Yeah. The, um, uh, uh, I have to ask this question. Um, so uh, the Trinity, one of these words, uh, you know, there's lots of Greek words going around uh, uh, the Trinity. One is this word perichoresis, which I'm not exactly sure what it means, but it's kind of like mutual. My, my understanding is that it's some kind of mutual, the mutual indwelling or interrelating between the persons of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. Um, and that some have likened this, like they say, it's like a circle dance. And so Mm -hmm. God is like this. Um, I think this comes from the work or I, I'm vaguely familiar with it from the works of Richard Rohr, right? Is that right? Um, uh, like that God. So it's this saying like, God is this beautiful divine dance. Um, this is the flow of God. We can get, get in the flow of the divine life or whatever. I, you know, I'm, I might not be doing justice to what, he actually says, but uh, Fred, you're the Trinity person, so I have to ask you, <laughs> what's up with what's up with the divine dance? Yeah, well, there's no absolute rule that says you can't um, think poetically of of God in terms of a dance, and there's something about the the um, the way a movement is passed around between bodies in a dance that that is maybe giving you a glimpse of something. Um, and you can find dance language in like Tim Keller and C.S. Lewis and further back. Um, but not very far back and certainly not among ancient Greek speakers because perichoresis doesn't mean circle dance. Um, it, it, it's um, about a mutual in-being uh, or a mutual indwelling. Uh, it's actually a bogus etymology. It's a false etymology to connect it to koruo uh, or koreo, where we get choreography from. That, that actually, if you go to the library and get the Greek lexicons, they won't back that up. Um, it's, it's, the word dance is not built into the word perichoresis. Well, shoot. (laughs) Yeah. And also, and and not to, not to go into much detail with Roar, Roar develops it in his own unique way. He picks up what a lot of people have said about this word dance, which is, you know, uh, not illegal. I'm not anti-dancing. I'm not officially Baptist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I'm also not against using the imagination to kind of engage with theology. Rohr actually uses this language to establish a different teaching, which is that behind and around and among the three persons, what really matters is a certain kind of flow, which is dance-like, which includes us, and we're in it, and the world, and God and the world are dancing, and it's all one big flow. Um, Sounds like a rave. It's, yeah. (laughs) It's the divine rave. Let's grab the glow sticks. Yeah. That sort of sounds like. I guess new new agey. I guess for lack of a better term, uh, I think so. Yeah, Rohr's book on the Trinity, um, the Divine Dance. It uses a lot of traditional language, but it's uh, he's pretty clear in it. He's going a, a specific direction with what it all means for him. Is the Trinity related? What about the Rule of Three or the Law of Three? We see threes everywhere. Fred, what's going on with that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting. Um, I I don't think there's very much significance about it for um, Trinitarianism. The, the doctrine of the Trinity, this, this Christian teaching of who God is, is not about threeness. Um, it uses threeness to make its point, but it's just not about the uh, power of the number three. Um, like, but why are there three points to my sermon? That's yeah, proof that's right. of the Trinity. 
That's right. <laughs> Why am I holding up three fingers right now? Yeah. You can't see, but uh, yeah. Or by you know, I would I would make the distinction. Um, a, a good painting, of course, uses paint, but very few great paintings are about paint. So I'm not denying that threeness is there. I'm just saying that that's not the the referent. It's you know, right. This document doesn't exist to lead you into the mystery of threeness. It exists to connect you to the one true God through the gospel of the Father sending the Son and the Spirit. That raises an interesting question: Is what is the best painting about paint? We'll throw <laughs> with audience. Please respond. Please respond to the challenge. And, and this is my last question. And Fred, this relates to kind of Trinitarian language within the life of the church. And this is maybe getting like extremely inside baseball. Um, And so sorry to the audience. But, uh, um, you know, so uh, like I come from, uh, you know, mainline tradition or whatever. And uh, when I was in seminary, I had just started, um, you know, one of the the hot topics uh, that was being studied uh, by the denomination – was uh, tr- alternatives for Trinitarian language. And so, like, non-quote-unquote um, uh, or so-called, you know, sexist art- articulations, because father, that's a male word, son, that's a male word. And so, like, re- you know, redeemer, creator, creator, redeemer, sustainer, like alternative Trinitarian language. Uh, what, do you, what do you think of that? Yeah, um, so w- especially the one you propose, um, creator, redeemer, sanctify, or something like that, this happened a lot, I would say, especially in the 80s. And I understand the concerns that feminist critique is bringing to this. You don't want to treat, you don't want to teach the doctrine of God the Father as if you've just taken fatherhood out of, out of our contemporary culture and sort of divinized it, right? That's, that's not what's going on. The, the way the biblical revelation of the fatherhood of God happens is it's really a transcendent critique of all sort of created fatherhood. So it's not, I take my fatherhood and times at times infinity, and that's what God is. Um, It's that there is, Ephesians says, um, the father from whom every fatherhood gets its name. So in fact, when Jesus teaches us to pray to our heavenly father, father means he's like my dad. Heavenly means he's not like my dad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, So the feminist critique actually does a great job of pointing that out. There are people who, when they say God the Father, they're really thinking like my dad times infinity minus the problems. Yeah, big big daddy, you know, in the sky yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So I would gladly invite in feminist critique to sharpen our confession of what we mean by Father. The interesting blunder that so many people made all through the 80s, liturgically, when they're coming up with new ways to talk about God in church that, um, you know, don't commit certain errors, they go to this sort of creator, redeemer, sanctifier language. And what what's really obvious to me is that they're not talking about who God is, but what God does. God creates and redeems and sanctifies. And then there may be parceling that out among the three persons of the Trinity, but they've changed the conversation from divine being to divine action. And so they're failing to be Trinitarian. That's the, the major problem with most of those revisions of God language. So say more about that uh, 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 kind of collapsing or or. Tr- Trans, getting rid of the being of God and talking only about the actions of God. What's the relationship properly understood between God's being and God's acts? Yeah, well, you know, when we're, when we're talking about God as Father, Son, and Spirit, we're not saying that one thing he does is Father, and another thing he does is, you know, saves, and another thing he does is uh, sanctifies, or, or whatever work we want to assign to the Holy Spirit when we're talking like that. Um, we're actually talking about if there had never been any sanctification of believers, if there had never been any incarnation and salvation, if there had never been any creation of heaven and earth, if all there was was God, 
God would be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would say to each other or talk to each other or call each other in that regard, because I'm using the English word Father yeah. based on the revelation in Scripture, which is then translated into English and then I talk about. So I don't know what language they speak to each other in the happy land of the Trinity above all worlds before all time. But I know that unless God has changed or is lying about who he is, God eternally was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that, that's the depth of the Christian claim using the language of the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not simply about what God does. We have lots of things to say about what God does, and what God does is consistent with who God is, so that you can actually talk about creation as a special work of the Father, that it's appropriate to point to the first person of the Trinity with regard to creation. Um, but it's not as if it's exclusive and the Son and the Spirit are not involved in creation. Mm. This is uh so the, this is this is a good place to uh to to leave it is that the yeah at the heart of the Christian claim about who God is is that God is Father Son and Holy Spirit from all uh from all eternity that is who God is and that is who that is who God has revealed Himself to be um to us uh through through the Son um in the power of the Spirit so uh uh, uh a a um I mean just a beautiful. Uh, picture of 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 who God is and uh, who God has revealed Himself to be, and so Fred, thank you for uh, dropping some knowledge, some Trinitarian uh-huh. knowledge, yeah. uh, uh, on us uh, today here today on Like Trees Walking. Um, well, thanks yeah. for talking with me. Oh, that was very very interesting. So, uh, folks, in the show notes, we'll point you to Fred's uh, voluminous works. Do you have anything coming out soon, Fred? Um, nothing very soon. No, my main book is still the Deep Things of God and How the Trinity Changes Everything. So that, if you want, if, is that your ur text? If people, if they read anything by Fred Sanders, is that what they should read? That's the one. That's my life message. When I uh, finished that up and sent it in, I said to my wife, I don't mean to be morbid, but if I were to die now, that was the main book I was supposed to write. But that's that's good. <laughs> hey, Fred, this is Mike joining uh, Dave and thanking you again for this. And please watch out for the Like Trees Walking bump on your book sales, where it's just going to go through <laughs> The roof. So, oh, uh, yeah, Mike's joking, but we uh, we interviewed um, uh, Gordon Graham, who was he recently retired from uh, Princeton Seminary, but he was a, a philosophy professor there. And one of his books, uh, Evil uh, and Christian Ethics, went from like four million four hundred thousandth on Amazon to three million six hundred thousandth. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah. I like to look at that not as a percentage jump, but as a million spaces <laughs> up it went. Because of it. <laughs> so we're we're powerful. That's that's a movement, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again, Fred. This was a, a, a great discussion, and our listeners are going to love it. Good talking to you. Yeah, you nice s- talking yep. to you. Take care. Hey, everyone. Just Mike here, signing off. Dave is fine. He's just not here. He had to leave. So I hope you enjoyed that episode with uh, Fred Sanders. And we'll catch you, I'm sorry, Dr. Fred Sanders. And we'll catch you next time on uh, another episode of Like Trees Walking. (laughs) 